Well, if you haven't yet, you can turn to Romans chapter 13. As I mentioned, we are taking a break from our studies in 1 Samuel in order to uh, pursue some Advent studies. And uh, verses 8 to 14 of Romans 13 will be our study today. If you're using a Bible from the back, it's on page 1007. Uh, If you're using your phone, you know, you don't need any help. That's easy. Um, We'll set the context for our study in this way. In, In the course of life, we regularly encounter circumstances in which we're helped by the historical experiences of others. Uh, This may occur in the context of our professional life. So if we have a new job or maybe we get promoted to a new position within the company, uh, while we have a basic understanding of what our new responsibilities may entail, we can still find a great deal of help as we talk to a person who's done our job before us because we're helped by the historical experiences of others. Um, We experience the same thing in family life, whether it's in marriage or parenting. Uh, We can certainly attest to the fact that uh, that in talking with those who uh, maybe who have already parented young children, for example, as we, as we have interactions with those who are a little further down the path, we can find ourselves encouraged in the immediacy of our own responsibilities because the historical experience of others can be a great encouragement to our present circumstances. And as we think about this reality on the first Sunday of Advent, there's a sense in which this truth comes into unique focus for us as we begin preparing for this Christmas season. As Christians, we are entering a season now where where we and just about everybody else around us is prepared to be festive and uh, very ready to celebrate. Uh, So kids are going to be out of school, which is great. People are going to be traveling. Gifts are going to be purchased. Uh, Meals will be shared. Plans will be made. Uh, Sure, in the midst of all of that, some stress will be had. But overall, it's going to be a celebratory time. People will be in a joyful spirit as the season of Christmas is approaching uh, because this is a season, not just religiously, but even generally and culturally, this is a time when there's a genuine sense of celebration in the air. Uh, We sing joy to the world, we sing jingle bells, we get trees, we put lights up, we buy presents, lots and lots of things to do and lots to be excited about. And so we feel the joy and the energy that exists in all of these things, even at a mere cultural level, we feel that joy during this season. Um, I like going to Starbucks and seeing the red cups. It makes me happy. We enjoy the lights on the houses. Uh, it's, It's a festive and happy time. And with all that, along with all that, we can also acknowledge that it's a fairly distracting time. Um... And, and, and we feel that in a variety of ways, but, but even as we reflect on what we're doing here this morning, this is the first Sunday of Advent. So, so more than just a day between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, this marks the first weekend when we as Christian believers especially consider the fact that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the glories of His heavenly reality in order to enter into our human experience. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the season when we consider, like what we sang about in our very first song this morning, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. What an amazing reality that we're celebrating during this time. We feel the joy and the energy that exists around us at Christmas time, the lights, the colors, and all of that. But in the midst of that, we also feel our need to be renewed amid the distractions. We need to be renewed in what it means to know the Lord Jesus who's come and who is coming again. And in the interest of that renewal need that we have, those who've gone before come to help us. 
the historical faithfulness of Christian believers before us can be a great encouragement to us presently. Not because Christians in the past had it all figured out, but because there's wisdom in following the example of those who have faithfully gone before. And so, as, as I've mentioned over these the next four Sundays of Advent, what we're going to be doing is we're going to take some texts from the original Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so the Book of Common Prayer is an, is an Anglican prayer, uh, book of worship that was prepared to help Christians in their public worship beginning back in 1549. It's had some changes that have occurred uh, since it was originally published, but the 1549 version is good. And, and what we're going to do over these Advent Sundays is we're going to take themes and Scripture passages that Christians have reflected on for these hundreds of years now, Advent Sunday by Advent Sunday, and we're going to let those historical forms of worship help guide us in our own renewal this Christmas season. We're going to be encouraged in our faith in Christ as we're helped uh, from, from history past, reflecting on what Christians have done in, in years before us. And, and as we're encouraged in this, we can, we can remember that in this we're being called to a renewed life in Christ, a renewed life of faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's especially prominent in this first Sunday set of considerations from Scripture because down through the generations, the first Sunday of Advent has often been one that is viewed as, as a Sunday where we renew our commitment to walk in the way that Jesus saved us to live. Much like um, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' earthly ministry, the first Sunday of Advent is seen as a kind of preparatory Sunday, a Sunday where we're called back to walk in the ways that Christ has called us to walk in, which is reflected in the liturgy so far this morning. It's historical for that reason. So, so what was the psalm that we began with? Well, we began with Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But what is his delight? Well, his delight is in the law. It's in the instruction of the Lord. It's a call back to the good way of God. Or even in the, in the confession that we engaged in already, what did we pray? Well, well we made that historical request that, that the Lord would give us the grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's a, it's a request to be renewed in a faithful life under God. And now again, as Christians have done for almost 500 years, now for our study this morning, we're going to consider Romans chapter 13, 8 to 14. Because in these verses, we have the same theme. That as we begin to anticipate and celebrate the coming of Jesus, this is the place to start. It's a call to be renewed in our faithfulness to Him. It's a call to walk again in the new life that He saved us to live. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. As, as the Christmas season begins, our hearts are oriented by the historical theme of being renewed in the life Jesus came to save us for. If you like, this is a, a reorientation kind of Sunday. It's an about-face kind of Sunday where, where the distractions and, and all the things that can pull us away, whether, whether good just in generally or even those deeds of darkness that can start to creep in and, and cause us to drift away from the, from the way of Christ. This is a Sunday where we come and we return. We, uh, we orient ourselves toward the way of Christ. And so we're going to do this with, with our text this morning. And uh, as, we, as we pursue 8 to 14, those verses, we're going to start first of all in verses 8 to 10, and we're going to consider those verses under the heading, what we've been saved for. What we've been saved for. Uh, so if you look at, at verse 8, starting there, we see that Paul begins by saying, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
I think I've, I've told you about this before, but growing up on long car rides, we used to play the word association game sometimes. Maybe you've played that. Uh, so like if, if I say green, you say the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe it's tree. Or if I, say, if I say ball, you might say soccer. Whatever comes to mind first. And if we were playing the word association game with the Apostle Paul, first of all, that would be weird. If we got to talk to Paul, the last thing in the world we do is, is, is play that game. But if we were... Um, we, we, we would be, and, and, we, and we asked him to respond to certain words, he might have responses that would, that would surprise us or at least be a little different than our initial responses. So, so thinking about our passage, if, if we were to, to be speaking with Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans, and if we were to say the word law, what is the very first thing that comes to our mind? Well, well for, for us, it might be something like rules or it might be the word abiding, law-abiding citizens. It might be the word break. You don't, want to, you don't want to break the law. It might be the word enforcement or, or justice or any, any number of terms along those lines. When the word law is given, we might have responses like these. But, but if we were playing the word association game with the Apostle Paul and we said the word law, probably among his first responses would be the word instruction. Instruction. Because the word law in, in the Scriptures, in, in the largest sense of the term, the word law refers to what God reveals to humanity through His Word with regard to how we should live as His creatures. Uh, but, but of course, what we come to understand very quickly is that as humanity, we are not capable of keeping the law. Now, not because God's law, not because God's instruction isn't good, now, not because God's law isn't right, but we're not capable of keeping the law because we've been marred by sin. We, we have transgressed God's way of our own volition and our internal compass is no longer turned toward God, towards God's instruction, but our natural internal compass, the posture of our heart, is turned away from God and His way in rebellion. That's, that's what our condition is as fallen, as sinful humanity. In our fallen nature, in our, in our state of having sinful hearts, the law of God is not ultimately attractive to us, but instead we turn against it. And, and of course, the outworking of that is not life for us, but instead is destruction and death. At, at an immediate and, and really very practical level, not keeping God's instruction is destruction because He's the one who made us and He knows the way the life that He created works best. And so to go against the law of God is akin to, to the fish deciding that they don't want the constraints of the river anymore because they just want to be free from the water. But, but, but to leave the, the constraints of, of life equals death. We know that. So, so the law of God should be life to us, but, but we're like fish in a sense in our humanity who want to shirk the constraints of the stream and we want to flop out of that way and ultimately die in our perceived freedom. That's, that's the condition of humanity. So at a practical level, the law of God, the instruction of God is a blueprint for living a flourishing life, but in our fallenness, in our contrariness to God, we reject it. And, then that, and that's not even the worst part, because in rejecting the instruction of God, it's not just that we're going against good sense teaching, but we're actually rebelling against God Himself. It's a personal offense. We're thumbing our nose at the one who made us and who gives us breath. We're like the two-year-olds who throw their plate of good food back at their parent who's only seeking to nourish them properly. It's just rebellion. And it's rebellion that ultimately costs us the penalty price of eternal judgment. That's actually how Paul starts off the letter to the Romans. He begins by saying, we are all lawbreakers. Right? We have all arrogantly exchanged God's good way for our own designs. And in so doing, we've not only chosen what is contrary to life, 
but we have actually uh, rightly and justly incurred God's condemnation. Because you can't disobey the good way of a just God and just have him turn a, turn a blind eye to that. There's no justice in that. Under the law of God, under the good way that God designed, all humanity finds themselves rightly condemned in their rebellion. The, the, the beginning of this letter to the Romans, Paul goes to great lengths to make that very clear. But then, as the letter to the Romans goes on, Paul unpacks the amazing reality about the good news found in Jesus. And, and in one of many climactic moments in this letter, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says this, What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, the flesh is Paul's way of speaking about the sinful nature in us, what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And now, now there's, a, there's a world of saving truth that's packed into that statement, but Paul's making the point that, that following the instruction of God can't ultimately save us because we're sinful. Obeying the law of God is not something we're capable of doing in a redemption kind of way. We're rebellious, we can't in and of ourselves follow the instruction of God well enough to save ourselves. We're lost in that. But Jesus came. And Jesus took sin's condemnation to Himself. He paid the price that we owe. And, and as glorious as that is, so, so we're free from our debt of sin before God. As we trust in Jesus' sacrifice at the cross, that's the middle of the gospel, 101. We're clean before God through the cross of Christ. So our violations of the law aren't held against us any longer. But, but, but that's not the end of the good news because, because an additional glory in all of that that Romans 8 is bringing out is that because Jesus has saved us from sin's dominion, the law can now be fulfilled in us as we walk by the Spirit. In other words, because Jesus has paid the price for our sin and renewed us in life, we now experience the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit who empowers us to walk according to the instruction of God, that way of God that leads to life. So we've been saved from going against God's instruction for life. We've been saved by Jesus and now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out God's good way of life now. We, 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 don't, we don't turn against God's instruction now as, as, as those who've come to faith in Christ, but instead we embrace God's instruction. In fact, we long for God's instruction. Even while we may struggle at different times, still in our deepest longings, we desire most of all to follow the Lord's Word. Even, and you've probably had this experience, even when we have those seasons of coldness in our heart, even when we have those seasons where we just feel distant from God, where we don't really feel like, like the law of God is something, the instruction of God is something that's compelling us, but we just feel cold toward the whole thing. Even in those seasons when we sit down and have, a, have an honest moment, what do we desire most of all? We desire most of all that that coldness wouldn't be there, don't we? We desire that our hearts would be warmed towards the way of God. Even that in and of itself is evidence of the Spirit's work in our hearts, the desire to go in God's way. So we've been renewed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done now to live a life that fulfills the law, that keeps the instruction of God. And it's exactly this point that is being unpacked in verses 8 to 10 where Paul is speaking now about love. So, so now look at, look at the, the text again, where, where Paul says here, 
don't owe anyone anything. Now, now actually, we should just take a moment and comment on that because, because that doesn't mean you can never take out a car loan. All right, so some, some Christians will go, will go there with this. Really what Paul's doing, if we're looking at the whole context, is he's piggybacking on what he just said about making sure you pay your taxes in the last, in the last section, un, under the uh, section on, on living as citizens of, of an earthly government. So, so he's not saying don't ever take, borrow money, don't ever have a debt. He's just saying don't ever let your debt go unpaid. In other words, if we're, if we're borrowing, make sure we're also repaying. That, that's what he's saying. Um, so, so he says, owe no one anything. Be, in other words, be paying off all your debts except for your debt of love to one another. Which is a very astounding statement to make because what Paul is saying is love is a debt we owe based on the love we've been shown by Christ. Love is a debt we owe that is perpetual. And in other words, love is a debt we owe that we never get to the point of finally having paid off. So, so this has extraordinary implications in some relationships, doesn't it? But there's never a point where we begin to engage, where we engage with somebody and we've, we say, at least maybe in our own minds privately, we say to ourselves, that's it, I've loved them enough. That, that, that is, I've given a lot, it's been painful a lot, and I'm just going to be at the end of loving them, at least for a while. That's actually not a reflection of gospel love. Gospel love is perpetual and ongoing, a debt to never be repaid because we've been, we've, we've been loved so eternally by, by Christ Himself. And so Paul says, love is this debt we owe that is perpetual. And then he says, uh, in, in, in verse 8 there, love, which is, which is a sacrificial concern for others, as we define it by the gospel, we define it by the cross, love, the sacrificial concern for others, is to be perpetually expressed by us because, and here's the thing, the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So, so you see the connection that Paul is, is making here with things that he's already said. If we'd read through Romans in one sitting, we would catch the flow of what he's, what he's arguing for here. He's already told us in Romans 8 that Jesus has saved us in order that we could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the law. We're now those who walk in the way that God calls us to. We've been saved to walk in God's instruction. And so how do we do that? Well, now Paul is bringing that back and he's saying it is a matter of extending perpetual love. That's what it looks like to walk in the law of God, to live out the law of God. To live a life of love is to live the life Jesus saved us for. It is the fulfillment of the law. So love is the, is the direction that the instruction of God, that the, that the law of God points humanity in. Which is why Paul then goes on uh, just to list these basic, basic examples from the Ten Commandments. You see that in the next verses. Don't commit adultery. Right? Well, that, that's fairly obvious, isn't it? If you remain faithful in your marriage, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're, you're loving your spouse well, which is what? Which is keeping the law. Right? And, and, and Paul lists out a few more. Just, just it's, it's low-hanging fruit in terms of examples. How, how about do not murder, do not steal, do not covet? He's just bringing us these examples. You see, saying to us, you see how this all comes together. Murdering obviously isn't loving. Stealing obviously isn't loving. Coveting obviously isn't exercising sacrificial concern for the other. But if you don't murder, if you don't steal, if you don't covet, in other words, if you're promoting life, if you're giving instead of taking, if, you, if, you're, if you're concerned for others instead of self-centeredly worried about what all you can get, if you're doing these things, you're living in a way that's oriented toward love. And then Paul says that's why it's all summed up in this quote he has from Leviticus, which Jesus also quotes when he's explaining the law, where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is a, a culminating aim of God's instruction. This is what we've been saved to do. 
Walk in the way Jesus has saved us to walk in, and that looks like love, which is defined by God's instruction. Love, which is defined by God's instruction, by God's law. Now, that's an interesting point to make when we think about love in our current climate, isn't it? Love is defined, uh, especially as we think about the culture around us at the moment. Love is defined, but it's defined uh, as maybe affirming what a person decides is best for them. Isn't that how love is so often defined? Love is defined by, by affirming the autonomy of an individual to live how they want to live. That, that's, that's how we culturally define love. To say that, that, that a choice is wrong is immediately not a loving thing to say, or so we, or so we are told. Right? But that's not love that fulfills God's instruction for life. That's not biblical love. Love that fulfills God's instruction for living is defined by the author of life, by God himself. So, so to call something good and embrace something good and work for something good as God defines good, that's love. To affirm something that is contrary to God's good, that's not love. That's ultimately to affirm somebody on a path of destruction. So, so to give of ourselves sacrificially for the, for the God-defined good of others as Christ has done for us, that's love. To do what someone wants us to do just because it is their preference. That's not love. That's, that's sentimentalism at best. It's destructive enablement at worst. But it's not love. So true love is the renewed fulfilling of God's law that Christ saved us to live out. So, so as, this, as this Christmas season begins, as the celebration of, of Christ's coming compels us to consider things, this is, this is part of the ambition of our heart, to be renewed in the life that Christ has saved us to live. He saved us to exercise ourselves for the sacrificial good of the other as God defines that good. Love your neighbor, which if we remember Jesus' parable about loving our neighbor. Jesus' parable about loving our neighbor was the parable of the Good Samaritan, wasn't it? Our neighbors, as Jesus helps us understand, our neighbors are even those who we'd be at deep odds with. Paul says the same thing earlier in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. So the Scriptures come to us and they renew us in ways that are very realistic and they are defined by God Himself as Christ expressed love for us. We have been saved by Jesus to love even those who seem so unlovable to us. So, so, so we can make a Christmas application of this. Do, do you have, I'm asking myself as I ask you, do you have someone in your life who causes you deep agitation? The answer is yes. We won't say enemy because that sounds a little tragic, okay? But, but maybe, maybe we should. Is there someone who you're deeply at odds with? That This Advent season, there could be nothing more Christ-centered and Christmassy than to actively look for ways to sacrificially express care and concern for them. This is a fulfillment of the law of love. What would it look like to love them well, though we're even at odds with them? This is, this is a part of fulfilling God's salvation purpose for us. This is what He's saved us to do. What is my purpose in life? It's a question we have at different seasons, at different times of life. Here's one way we answer that question. My purpose in life is to live out God's instruction for me as I love others in a way that He defines as loving. And as we do this, we fulfill His purposes. So, so that's verses 8 to 10. This is what Jesus came to save us for. 
And that's Christmas renewal that we need. And then as we move on into verses 11 to 14, Paul speaks uh, now, he, he moves really from reminding us what we've been saved for to calling us to, to renewed attentiveness. That, that's a nice way of saying he's, he's telling them to wake up, right, in verses 11 to 14. Attentiveness is an interesting thing. Uh, it's easy to go drow- grow drowsy in areas of life. Uh, financially, we can get drowsy with our household budgets, can't we? Did I, did I really eat out that much? I currently have a problem with QFC sandwiches that I like a lot, and I keep going and getting them, and i got to stop doing that. We get drowsy with our budgets. Right? Relationally, we can get drowsy and not give the attention we need to those who are closest to us. Uh, we can identify with the notion of drowsiness in a figurative sense in all kinds of different ways. And, and that is what Paul is addressing here in these verses. He's saying that these believers need to wake up. They've, they've gotten a bit drowsy in their faithful living, which on the one hand should actually be It's a cloudy one, but it should be an encouragement to us. Not because it's okay to be drowsy, but because it's realistic that believers experience these things. Just the fact Paul has to address it. Because we can find ourselves going through the Christian life in ways that are not in keeping with the way Jesus saved us to live. We can get tangled up in things. Uh, Apparently, as we keep reading here in these verses, Paul finds it necessary to bring up examples of, of drunkenness, sexual impurity, among other things. There's drift that can go on. There's drift that apparently is, is existing at least to some level, the threat of that here as he writes to this church. And even in Paul's initial directive here, calling the believers to wake up, we can be encouraged, not in the fact that that drowsiness in our faithfulness is okay, but we can be encouraged in the fact that drowsiness in our faithfulness is not an unchristian experience. And we can think that at times. We can think, well, because I'm stumbling and falling, because I'm I'm finding myself in this cold-hearted place, because I'm drifting, maybe I'm not really a Christian at all. I mean, maybe I've never really come to Christ, but that's, that's not what we have to be considering as we come to a passage like this. We need, to, we need to be able to say things like, it looks like I'm getting drowsy. I've gotten a little bit sleepy in my faithfulness. I've not uh, been awake as I ought to be awake. So Paul comes, and he doesn't say to these folks, get saved because you're not Christians. He says, quit being so sleepy in your Christian faith. Wake up, he says, verse 11, because you know the time. And what is that time? Well, Paul says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's what time it is. But we can get drowsy because we're lulled into thinking that the the misty flats of our mundane life is the totality of our life, can't we? Just day in and day out, the same thing. But no, that's not the case. From the day you first knew Christ until now, time has moved on. And so Paul says, the night is nearly over and the day is near. It's kind of night and day language. Night is a metaphor for what Paul calls, in, in Galatians, for example, this present evil age. Night is, is the world as it is, far from Christ and in rebellion against God. It's darkness all around. And then to speak of the day being near. Well, that takes us back to many of the Old Testament prophets who speak about the day of the Lord. They, they speak about the eventual, full, and culminating rule and reign of God, which we know uh, from the fullness of time reflects the return of Christ Himself. So so Paul's compelling these believers out of their drowsiness to think in terms of God's timeline. He's saying don't get drowsy because time continues to go by and in the economies of God's time, which are different than the economies of our time, but in the economies of God's understanding and purposes and things, the night will soon be gone and the day will be here. So, So we don't just live faithfully 
compelled by what Christ has done in the past. But we live as Christian believers with a constant sense of Advent. We live with a constant sense that time is moving forward and one day Christ will appear again. That the fact that Jesus came is punctuated by the reality that He will come again. Time marches on. And that day is closer now than when you first trusted in Jesus. And that day is closer now than when I first trusted in Jesus. Time is moving forward toward that end. And so what does that mean for us? Well, verse 12, let's discard. Let's. Do you notice how Paul includes himself? He's not saying, let me just stand on my apostolic pedestal for a moment and let you all know that I'm, I'm above you all and I've really arrived. No, no, no. Let us, me and you, right? Let's discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's be doing that. Okay, Paul, what in the world does that mean? Well, that means things like that, that, that correspond with darkness, things like Paul lists here, like carousing, drunkenness, sexual impurity, promiscuity, things like quarreling and jealousy. Does that make us a little uncomfortable that, that sexual impurity and jealousy can appear in the same list? These things all are, 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 are there in our lives at times, Paul says. We need to discard those things. We need to put them away from our life. And instead, verse 14, as he's talked about already putting on the armor of light, now he says, put on the Lord Jesus. See how Paul connects those two things? Putting on the armor of light is like putting on the Lord Jesus. So, so here we have one of Paul's favorite metaphors for faithful living. We, we do away with what's contrary to the way of Jesus by, what, by putting on what corresponds to Jesus himself. To put on Christ is to put on, as we read in other places, like in Colossians, is to put on things like kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's what, that's what it means to put on Christ. It is to prioritize, for example, a sexual ethic that reflects God's design for humanity and not a lustful compulsion. To put on Christ is to put on forgiveness and humility, not counting ourselves as most important, but counting others above ourselves, as Jesus has done for us. To discard the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light, to put on Christ, ultimately, is to put on love as God defines it. And so we're back full circle, you see, to where this whole section began. And, here, and here's the amazing thing. Put, putting on Christ is like the armor of light. It is like a weapon of righteousness. It arms us with virtues of Jesus, which ultimately help us with the final call that Paul has in this section, which is to make no provision for the flesh. Give the flesh no opportunity. In other words, give the sinful desires that, that while they no longer reign, as Spurgeon says, they do remain in our heart. Give no opportunity to those things. And part of the way we give no opportunity to those things is to starve those compulsions toward deeds of darkness by putting on the deeds of the day, these things that correspond with Jesus himself. So the thoughts and ambitions and actions and, and priorities that reflect Christ's own life in us. Back in chapter 8, uh, again, Paul talked about how one day we will experience the full redemption of our bodies. That's resurrection language in, in Romans chapter 8. One day, on the day of Jesus' return, we will be finally transformed into the fullness of who we've been saved to be in Christ. And here Paul says, in sum, let's live like it's that day. Let's start living like that day is now. What does it look like for you to be fully renewed and resurrected? That's, a, that's an enormous question to ask ourselves. What will the resurrected you be like? You'll still be you. 
but you will be renewed in total perfection and holiness. What does that you look like? That's the day you're seeking to work out and live toward right now by the transforming help of the Spirit of God. That's putting on Christ. The resurrection transformed you and me will have thoughts and ambitions that are always and only aligned with the person and work of Jesus himself. So Paul is saying to us, wake up and get after it. The resurrection transformed you and me will exercise no selfishness and only perfect concern for others. Paul's saying, wake up and start with that now. The resurrection transformed you and me will have an unending capacity to love others and that love will endure for all eternity, fulfilling God's purposes for humanity and a new creation. So, so Paul says, don't be drowsy. Jesus is coming. Wake up and live like time is passing because it is. He's coming. The night is going to be gone and the day will be here. And then so we see why Christians of, of, of earlier generations have understood this to be a kind of Advent text. Advent is the celebration of Jesus' arrival. And the Jesus who came is the Jesus who's coming again and that impacts the now of our living. It's easy to forget the truth and the busyness of our days that the Jesus who came is the Jesus who's going to come again. But a text like this wakes us up from that, wakes us up to the fact that when He comes, we will be rejoicing because there's no more night. And until He comes, He has left us. We remain here to be prepared by the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God as we exercise ourselves in His strength to be ready for that day. So the Puritans can say things like, the earth is the soul's dressing room. We're here on purpose and we're here for a time as the Lord prepares us uh, to, to, to ultimately be the resurrected people He's called us to be. And until He comes, we simply press on, waiting expectantly and faithfully for His appearing, living out the way of light, living out the law of love as we wait. And so, so the hymn writer can 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 put songs together the way they do and it's, it's so helpful to understand their thinking in this. So, so you know the hymn. It came upon a midnight clear. It, it starts so Christmassy. It came upon a midnight clear. You know what? The glorious song of old from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men for heaven's all gracious king. The world in psalm, solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. It's a reflection on Luke 2 and the birth of Jesus there. The hymn writer starts with Christmas, but he doesn't end with Christmas, does he? You know the last work? For lo... The days are hastening on by prophets seen of old when with the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold when peace shall over all the earth and ancient splendors fling and the whole world send back the song which now the angels sing. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men from heaven's all-gracious King. So this Advent season, we, we can honestly acknowledge that we get drowsy we live like it's night. We do at times. But this, this word comes to us and it draws us out into the day. It draws us out to put on Christ, to be renewed in Him who saved us, to live out God's life-giving purposes of love in this life as we look forward to the life to come. So this Advent season, who do you need to love? What graces? Do you need to pray to God, the Holy Spirit, to help you put on? 
And as we do these things, we're ultimately responding to the first coming of Jesus as we look forward to the second. John Stott, uh, we talk about Anglican, we're using the Book of Common Prayer. John Stott, the great Anglican minister, he said the Christian lives as if they're in a room staring out two windows. One window's looking back at the cross, the other window's looking out across the field uh, toward Christ's return. And that's very much how we live, especially during Advent season as we're renewed in these things. And so we're thankful to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would renew us in your truth. We want to walk in your way. We, we, we delight to walk in your way. It's the longing of our heart. And we pray that uh, for us corporately and for us individually as your people, uh, this would be, uh, this, this would be a, an effective call to renewal for us. We need this. We need to see Christ again, not just as the one who's come, but as the one who's returning. And we want to be those who live in the day and not in the night who look forward to the day of Christ's return. So help us to this end, ultimately, that you would be glorified by your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.